We've had to take an extended break in recent weeks due to moving home from New York to Austin, Texas. However, we're back now with season four and some fabulous guests lined up in the coming weeks. So we kick off season four with an interview I did just before leaving New York with fellow Brooklyn resident Jeff Rochester, a highly successful entrepreneur and respected thought leader and strategic advisor on corporate sustainability and responsibility, NGOs, philanthropy and social entrepreneurship. Jeff is a trusted advisor to some of the world's leading conservation, NGOs, media companies and consumer goods brands. There are solutions right under our feet. We need political will and we need corporate muscle to pull them off, right? App Harvest has a program where they have these container farms. So as they expand with their sites, App Harvest is a greenhouse company in Eastern Kentucky. As they build these structures, these greenhouses, they're dropping these labs, uh, these container farms. So imagine a retrofitted railroad car that's producing food for the school and food for the community. And you're teaching a 14 year old about indoor ag. Right. So there, there are tons of good stories of intervention and transformation. Uh, I'm lucky. I tell all my friends, people are like, aren't you depressed about this? Aren't you depressed about that? I'm like, no, I'm hopeful. I talk to amazing people every day, way smarter than me, way more courageous. They're making a difference. And in seven out of 10 cases, the ideas are highly scalable. Born in Barbados and raised in Brooklyn, the cultural diversity of his upbringing defined his worldview. His diplomat father, an empowering mother, ingrained in him the importance of having empathy for the plight of others and a lead, follow or get out of the way mentality and strong work ethic. Taking the lead and embracing early leadership roles at school helped him develop a sense of responsibility and accountability and the ability to execute on a vision. Discovering the importance of branding and marketing at an early age set Jeff on a path to a stellar career in marketing, working for both challenger and champion brands, including the CMO of Nature Conservancy, and senior marketing roles at Showtime, WWE, Comcast and Radisson. Jeff is also the founder of GRC Advising, a consulting firm that provides clients with comprehensive strategies to integrate sustainability and social purpose. Jeff and I have a lively discussion about his motivations, mindset and marketing mentality, dealing with fear, failure, curiosity, confronting conventions and his theory of change on climate and sustainability. Jeff also provides his perspective on food insecurity and developments in preventative healthcare and why he is hopeful about prospects for climate innovation. So I hope you enjoy the pragmatic leadership thinking and passion of Jeff Rochester. Jeff, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Thank you. It's, uh, it's great. Uh, thank you for making the time. I really appreciate it. Um, where are you at the moment? I am in beautiful Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Ah, so am I. I'm just around the corner from you, probably. We should have done this in person, but <laughs> we're still we're still stuck in our sort of COVID mentality of doing things virtually. When are we going to break out of that? But before we get into your life journey, which is uh, quite an extraordinary journey through marketing, corporate sustainability, management, philanthropy, social entrepreneurship, we always like to start talking about a guest's um, upbringing and their education and from what I've heard, you interviewed before, read about you and uh, brief conversations we've had. I believe you're born in Barbados, wonderful island, uh, but grew up in Flatbush, Brooklyn. So there's an interesting sort of combination there between that sort of Barbadian, Little England culture um, and obviously Brooklyn street smart culture. How did that, that fusion affect you and, or, or impact you and ar arm you to be the person you are today? Yep. And, and thanks again for 
having me on, I'd feel honored. I don't quite always think of myself as that guy that's getting interviewed. So I'm always, uh, I always come to this from a place of humility. So to, to, to be technically accurate, I actually left Barbados when I was three months old. Oh, wow. Okay. And then I went to Trinidad. I came to the U.S. when I was three years old. And, and what informs what the, the back story there is my dad was the civil servant and Many, many years ago, the Caribbean was trying to form something called the Federation, which would have been a coalition of Caribbean countries similar to what is today CARICOM. So he left Barbados to go to Trinidad to start that. It failed, and he was invited to go work at the embassy in New York. So that's how I landed in New York. And for those that know the migration patterns, people from the Caribbean tend to go to the UK, to Canada, and to the US, and then tend to land at Flatbush. (laughs) <laughs> which is the probably the largest concentration of West Indians outside of the West Indies anywhere in the world. Wow. Even more than bricks in London. Well, it would be close. It would be yeah. close for sure. And so the, the, the mashup of the very conservative, very concise thinking of Barbados and Bajans, not Barbadians. Oh, right. Bajans. Right. Okay. Excuse me there. I'm getting that wrong. And, and the very different kind of thinking in Brooklyn, I, I think, you know, the, the words that come to mind are empathy and cultural diversity. So Brooklyn is a melting pot, pot for sure. And I think, you know, I, I came to this country with a sense of, I was only three years old. I didn't have a sense of anything. Right. But as I grew up here, uh, and because my dad worked at the, at the UN, I always had a very strong sense of, um, I am from another country. I respect the U.S., but even as a kid early, and I think it's because, quite frankly, you know, you come out of a country like Barbados, you have leaders that are black, and you feel that anything is possible because you don't have people saying, you know, racism is the reason why you cannot do something. Yeah. So, so the the, the things that that I felt, you know, even as a young kid in Brooklyn, I felt empowered. I felt a sense of empathy. My parents are very generous people. And my dad, because of his work, we were constantly helping people immigrate into the U.S. We had many, many people sleep on our couch, sleep in my bed, right? I'd, I'd get dumped from the small bed to no bed as, <laughs> as some adult you know, was passing through. And this notion of cultural diversity by definition, right? I, I spent time at a public elementary school in Brooklyn, um, PS 241 and 316. And I spent time at the U.N. school. Where the kid in front of me is from the UK, the kid behind me is from Ethiopia, the kid to my left is from China, and the kid to my right is from the US. So I, I always had a sense of cultural diversity and a sense of uh, empathy for the plights of plights of others. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's the way you describe your sense of identity and your perspective on racism and believing in possibility is shared by other West Indians? in Flatbush that come here? Or do you think it's, uh, it was something specific to the way that your, your father conditioned you to think? I, I don't, I don't really know. I don't really know. I, I, I just know that, um, and, and look, you know, it's nurture nature, right? It's, it's your, mm. it's your genes and it's what you're surrounded by, but coming from a small island, right. And I, I don't know, I, you know, my dad and I didn't talk about it a lot, but I have to believe, and, and there's a history of the UN nominating secretary generals that came from smaller countries, right? Not yeah. from the U S Germany or China. So I think he, he had a sense of 
I have a seat at the table. Barbados is a tiny island, 250,000 people, but I'm going to get, I'm going to make my voice heard. That was probably his persona at the UN. And I'm sure when he was built working on the Federation, you had Jamaica, the big island, and you had Barbados and Grenada and St. Lucia, the tiny islands. And I'm sure the foundation of those conversations was how do we have a common uh, understanding and a democracy of ideas and votes where the big guys don't outweigh the little guys. So I, I don't know. I don't know. But, but I've always felt that I, you know, even today, I'm very proud of the fact that the leader of Barbados is a black woman. She's a Bajan and she's a lesbian. How many countries around what there are 170 countries worldwide or more? How many, how many have a uh, gay male or lesbian woman at the top of the food chain? Right. So I'm very proud of that. And look, the, the Caribbean has not had the best history of being accepting of same sex. Right. Yeah. I remember, I remember there was a time when gay cruises like stopped going to the Caribbean. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I, I'm, I'm just very proud of my heritage and I think that the foundation of it is, and again, I didn't grow up there. I left there when I was three, but we carried that in our home. And the foundation of that is literacy. Barbados has always had one of the highest literacy rates in the world. So whether you are what's called a tradesman or professional there, you read, you argue, you sit in a rum shop on a Saturday and you argue politics and the politics is of the UK, of the US and of Barbados. By the way, political discourse is always enhanced by a little Malke rum. Yeah, definitely. And you can sit and actually have a proper discussion where people listen to you as well, rather than just uh, have their ears closed. But um, I heard you say that your parents instilled in you the values of um, lead, follow, get out of the way. Can you explain that and how that guidance has affected you? Yeah, I, I just, I just think, look, Bajans aren't known for the most emotional, being the most emotional people. They're incredibly rational. And I grew up in a household, there was a lot of love, but there was also a lot of rational conversation. And I remember, you know, I don't know, I was eight or nine. There was this guy called Mayor Lindsay at the time, much beloved mayor of New York. And I remember disliking snow. And I remember my parents saying, write a letter to the mayor. They didn't say the government is corrupt. They didn't say you're an eight-year-old kid. They didn't say the mayor's not going to listen to you because you're an immigrant from Barbados, from the Caribbean. They said, write a letter. And I did. And so I've always had a sense of lead, follow, or get out of the way. It's one of my favorite phrases. And look, we all, we all tend to um, mimic or be instilled by, my, by our parents. My dad was a politician, a diplomat. I ran for class president and won four or five years in a row, junior high school to high school, right? Um, and I, I, I was, I was sucking down bad coffee with powdered milk coffee mate when I was probably 13 or 14 years old as a student representative going to, um, uh, parent teacher meetings and school board meetings. And making yourself heard as well. Yeah. I, I've always, I've always just had an innate sense of if you see something you don't like, say something. If you're just going to sit around and complain, that doesn't make you feel good and it doesn't make the problem go away. And if you if you're not willing to do either one, just shut your mouth and be cool with it and figure out a way to embrace it. Right. So it's one it's one of you know, lead, follow, or get out of the way. Right. And I think it's uh I I have never expressly talked to my folks about it, but around the dinner table, there was always a sense of um lean in. 
don't step back. And and again, I, I take pride in the fact that Barbados was this, is, is this tiny little island, but has always, I think, felt like uh, it could carry its own load and be heard in the world. Mm-hmm. And think about that sitting in the shadow of Great Britain, right? Yep. Barbados didn't become independent until 1967. But I think Beijing's up until this moment, continue to have an enormous sense of pride about their journey yeah. from a British colony to fully independent nation. So I take it that when your parents shared that guidance with you to lead, follow, or get out of the way, there wasn't any following and getting out of the way. It was all about, as you say, leaning in and, and taking on that leadership role. Do you think it affected your work ethic and your perspective on being able to um, be in service of others? Well, in service of others and just like nose to the grindstone. I mean, look, you know, I grew up old school. I, 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 to this day, I laugh at the fact that I think since I can remember, since I was probably 12, I've, I've gotten up at six o'clock in the morning. Like you weren't sleeping in our household, right? And, and part of that is commuting. I mean, when I went to the UN school, it was a much further commute to the city from Brooklyn because we lived deep in Flatbush. So that was probably an hour. And you were having to get up to the Upper East Side. Well, no, they were, they were, they were Midtown or Lower East. I don't know where the UN school is today, but, but when I was there, they were in the twenties, I think. All right. Uh, but the, the point being commuting early in my life when I was a kid. And then even when I was in junior high school and high school was always a 45 minute proposition minimally. And then when junior high school, when I did orchestra, right, that's 8 a.m. start. Right. You got to be there by 745. So you, you're not sleeping in. That's the point. Um, so, so for me, work ethic is two dimensional. Be first at your desk, be first in the door, be last out, work hard, demonstrate your worth. And then secondly, yes, you know, um, uh, extracurricular activities in, in school and in college, uh, in college and in, a, in service of others, I was a manager at Georgetown's basketball team. By definition, a manager is, is enabling conditions, servicing the team, right? Yeah. You're starting five, you've got the other guys, you've got your coaches, and you have your managers. So, um, I don't know. Some of that was clearly instilled in my, in, from my parents. And I have, to give, I have to give a shout out to my mom. I've talked a lot about my dad. My mom was a great enabler. Right. She was the one coupon cutting. She was the one managing the bills. She worked. And, and the thing that I, I feel proud of that I didn't fully appreciate till later in life, she always sacrificed her career for his. Right. And, you know, he may have been the dominant wage earner, but more importantly, uh, we all aligned behind him. He moved from, um, uh, Barbados to Trinidad. He moved Trinidad to, Brooklyn, he knew uh, they moved Brooklyn to Washington, D.C., where they settled in. And I became painfully aware later in life, quite frankly, that she changed her career completely every time. When they were in Barbados, you know, one could argue her career surpassed him. him. She was on her way to being a principal, in essence, of what we would call a charter school in Barbados. So she was, you know, her, her career was elevating. He was probably civil servant mid-management, Right. And then they go to Trinidad. She's got to start over, right? Teacher certifications, et cetera. They move to New York, Brooklyn. She exits the teaching uh, uh, career and she embarks on a career in computers, the, the precursor of what are today modern day computers. She was a key punch operator, right? So the, 
in a land far, far away, they had these things called uh, punch cards yeah. that were operating system for these mainframe room-sized computers. So she was early into the tech revolution. In her own way, she was a tech warrior, right? We were in New York for, I don't know, uh, nine years or something. And then we moved to Washington, D.C. She starts all over again. She becomes a travel agent. So um, without getting too sappy, there was a time when my dad had a major surgery, heart surgery about 15, 20 years ago. I'll never forget it. He's getting wheeled into the operating room. He says, you know, take care of your mom if something happens because she's made all these sacrifices throughout her throughout her life for him. I mean, it doesn't get any deeper than that. So I, I, you know, what I modeled is a, a father who was a diplomat and oh, was always in service of others. I model a mom, a mom who's completely adaptable, held a family together. Cause trust me, he, he worked his ass off at the UN late nights and meetings and policy stuff. And she was a source of joy for the family. So uh, I, I lucked out. I got two really good ones. Aside from your, your work ethic, your commitment to service and leading, um, you tend not to get to where you are today without um, a sense of deep sense of curiosity. And we talked, you talked about nature and nurture. Was there anything that you can recollect or recount around your parents nurturing and encouraging your curiosity in any way? I love the word curiosity. I love the idea of curiosity. Uh, not unlike a lot of parents, I think what they did was they did their best to expose my brother and I to a wide range of things. Mm -hmm. They both loved music. That was their lane. They both played the piano. My mom still plays the piano a little bit every once in a while. So we did the classic thing of here, a bunch of instruments, you're enrolled in a school music program, figure out what you love. And my brother, you know, we both did piano. My brother's six years older than we both did piano. And he did violin and guitar, so he did strings. I did woodwinds. I did flute and oboe and piano. Uh, but that was through their urging to explore music. Uh, we grew up playing, and my brother played soccer. Uh, we all grew up playing tennis with my dad. And, you know, I, I remember fondly we would go to the Kennedy Center, this beautiful performing arts facility in downtown Washington. And we, you know, we, we'd enjoy classical music. So I think they did what they could to expose us to a range of things. Probably the most fundamental tool that they use is we had to read. Like every summer we had to read books and I fell in love with reading and reading feeds your soul and, and strengthens your mind. Did they direct you in the type of uh, novels or was it uh, nonfiction? No, we did a lot of the classics, Jane Eyre, Wuthering Heights. It was kind of, and it's funny, I, I don't think people today have an appreciation of when I was a kid, you know, there was a thing called Encyclopedia Britannica, right? Oh, yeah. Door to door. When I was a kid, they had these classic books. I think they were sold door to door and you'd buy a suite, hmm. right? You'd buy like 20 of them or 30 of them. We just, we, there's still some knocking around my place and my parents' place. But they just, you had to read. They encouraged reading. Uh, you know, go back to Barbados literacy, right? But I, I just can't say enough. I always felt everything was on the table, no obstacles. If, you know, my brother, got into these crazy little science project things and rockets and lasers. And, you know, again, you know, in the back of comic books, they would have these order forms where you could order all this stuff, right? There was no Amazon yeah. and you'd send it in, you'd send your money in by mail or whatever, check. And my brother was always experimenting with science-based stuff. And me being six years younger, I was Gaga. He set up a, a gas laser in the basement 
you know, when he must have been 16 and I was 10 and I was just in awe. But the point is they allowed it, right? Mm-hmm. right? They did. I, I can't think of anything they ever discouraged. Now, to be clear, you know, again, a very different era. We weren't coming back with tattoos. We weren't doing anything provocative. We weren't running around going to rape parties, right? So, so within reason, they kind of supported any idea we wanted to advance. Mm-hmm. What was your ambition at that time? Your brother was into science. Yeah, I was, uh, I mean, I like sci-fi, the fantasy of sci-fi. Uh, I used to, I, used, I actually used to read a lot of the sci- sci-fi novels. So that was my passion. Isaac Isimov, Robert Heinlein, Dune. Uh-huh. Uh, there's a, there's a serial book called Dot Savage. I had like, oh yeah, yeah. Dot Savage, right? I, I had, I don't know where it is today. I had, you know, if the collection was 60, I had 45 of the 60 all. Did you ever um, get into, I suppose it's not, wouldn't fall into classic sci-fi, but any of Neil Stevenson's novels? No, no, I didn't. I didn't. Now you get a chance, they're good. Snow Crash is a particularly good one. This uh, feels like, Snow Crash, it feels like we're living through Snow Crash today. Oh, wow. It's definitely worth checking out. So, is there any sort of defining memory um, from your childhood that you think has had a, a defining impact or seminal impact on who you are today? Anything standout moment? You know, th- there were two things. One was, there was a time when we were separated as a household. So my brother and I were in D.C., I mean in New York. And my parents were, so, so my dad took a new job and classic migration pattern. He goes first, then he brings my mom. And then I don't know, there was probably a six month window where my brother and I were raised by my aunt and uncle in, uh, in Brooklyn. And, you know, that was fun and it was different. And I, I guess, I guess a defining moment is we always had to be fairly independent. And I think that is part of the immigrant, um, journey. You know, you come to the U.S., you don't have like grandparents around. You don't have aunts and uncles around. It's your nuclear family. Just figure it out. And everyone's spread thin. So both parents work. You know, my brother and I would get home from school at three o'clock and we had to figure it out. And, you, you know, you're on the subway uh, on your own as a little kid. And, you know, one of the first things you learn is not to make eye contact. You know, I remember that vividly as a kid, you know, head down, backpack you know, flute in my books in my backpack and I'm reading my book and that's it. And, and you're always self-aware, you know, and it's not like I'm traveling at 1am in the morning, but it's nine o'clock in the morning. It's daylight. Right. But you're self-aware, yeah. right. You, you, you just learn. And I think that's a uniquely New York experience, quite frankly, versus, I don't know, Idaho or Philadelphia. Or what age, um, what age would you have been doing that? 11, 10, 11. If, in fact, to be fair, most of that was probably with my brother. I don't remember, but I just remember commuting. And being just self-aware. Yeah, all the same, being at 10, 11, going on the subway yourself in New York City. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, and again, to be fair, that may have been with my brother, but again, I just remember an acute sense of what's happening around me. The other thing, the other, I, I think, you know, defining moments, we were running my first election as a kid in junior high school. And I remember my platform was we needed a new uh, water fountain, and I researched it, and I... And I, I said, you know, if you, if you like me, I'm going to get you a new water fountain. And I, I did that, I think four years in a row, one year, one year in junior high school and four or five years, one year in junior high school and four years in high school where I was either class president or student body president. And you got a sense of responsibility and accountability. And you got a sense of um, driving a vision 
and you got a sense of you better execute that vision because everyone's watching. Now, and I've, and I, I've carried that through life for sure. And I suppose, I mean, if, well, your description is a small a microcosm of what you do today, but to get a new fountain is about transformation. It's about change. It's about making something possible that maybe other people would have shied away from. So if you were being conditioned, that sort of neuroplasticity was sort of creating in your brain, the sort of a, the wiring to drive forward change and transformation. Yeah, the other aspect, and I, I thank you for that. That's very kind. I, I think about that less than um, what I've thought about is marketing and branding, mm-hmm. right? At every stage of those elections, I had to market and brand myself. And then as I got into high school, we got to branding my high school, which was the Wilson Tigers. And we did some things. I remember, you know, uh, high school does fit all the stereotypes. You had the jocks. And at that time, you had kids that were leaning in on, on computer programming. Uh-huh. I, I remember some of them coming to me and they were going to, they did, they did a project where they were able, it's stunningly simple today, but at the, at the, at that time it was a crowning achievement. They were able to print on paper, wall size paper, the name of the high school and logo through a computer program. And it was a massive achievement. But do you, when you say marketing and branding, you weren't thinking about it in the context of marketing and branding at that time. It was just, it just said you were conscious of it. Well, because look, you look at the structure of any high school, what's junior high school, you know, a lot of the branding comes from sports. Uh huh. If you have a successful football or basketball team, the mighty tigers, right. And we're the real Wilson tigers. And so you create t-shirts and caps and mugs and, and yes. So, so branding counts even at the high school, I, I may not have called it branding, but I knew it was badging. It yeah. was honor. It was honor. It was a statement. It was something co- people could feel proud about. You had your logo, you had your tiger's logo. Yeah. All, all those were the elements. So that experience at school, what were your, your thoughts? Because you obviously were uh, encouraged to read at home, um, a strong work ethic from an early age. I take it there weren't any issues at school. Were there any sort of mentors that set you on a sort of particular path? Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking that I omitted, like I buried the lead. Teachers were always fantastic with me from the orchestra leader in junior high school to the principal, uh, Mr. Duncan in junior high to there was a program where NFL players, you know, like the Redskins local team would liaise with schools. There was a guy called Harold McClinton. I think it was an offensive or defensive lineman for the Redskins, and he would come to the school and I developed a relationship. I was that kid that loved adults. I just did. Right. Mm-hmm. And they loved me back, but I loved adults. Uh, and, and I learned from them. They took me under my wing, their way. As I said, when I was in high school, the, 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 the teacher associated with the student government would take me to school board meetings and PTA meetings. And I would leave home at seven to go to school and I'd come back at eight o'clock at night. You know, having gone to a meeting at four from four to six or something after school, but I loved it. And look, that's, that was the world of my dad from a policy standpoint, right? They sit in rooms and negotiate shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but teachers, teachers always had a strong, uh, impact on me. C- Carolyn Green was a, uh, a teacher in, in high school who I loved. Alan, Michael Allen Durso was a assistant principal who was, uh, had a bit, bit, big impact on my life. And then in college, there was a woman, Ellen Morrell, who introduced me to marketing. I still know her to her, 
to this day. She's a very prominent Georgetown alum. And, uh, and I know her family and I saw her kids grow up. And then Coach Thompson at Georgetown was a tremendous role model for me. And then in, in high school and in college, upperclassmen, you know, a guy called Lloyd Campbell at Georgetown, he and his wife, Anne, tremendous role models for me right up until I went through Wharton. So I've always benefited. And then as an intern at my first job, Richardson Bates, so I'm now 23, 24, coming out of grad school. And the upperclassmen, in essence, the, the folks that were brand managers, and I was an entry level, you know, were always very kind, always very Socratic almost in their mentoring, right? Very much one-on-one, just very transparent, kind, smart people that just pushed you to do better, do more. You mentioned Georgetown and Wharton, um, and you studied international business and marketing and then got your MBA. Do you think if you hadn't gone down that sort of particular path in terms of your uh, collegiate choices, you would have still ended up doing something similar to what you're doing now? I, I'll tell you, a, a, a seminal moment was uh, in typical Caribbean fashion, my, my father was very emotional about the cost of undergrad. So it's spring freshman. <laughs> Understandably. Yeah. I was, I, was a, I was a freshman. It's spring. I, I was what's called a day hop. So I didn't live on campus. I was just some kid that commuted from Silver Spring to Georgetown. And I was involved in a couple of things, but it was kind of like a not nine to five thing for me. And I'd come in on the weekends to hang out or whatever. And then what really transformed my life is I, uh, there was an office of minority student affairs. You know, look, I got into Georgetown on a minority scholarship. I'm proud of that, right? There was a program that picked uh, students from the DC community and, and facilitated them uh, matriculating into Georgetown. I was a, I was a beneficiary of that program. And so I knew the people that ran that program was called the Office of Minority Student Affairs back then. And I had just had the chat with my dad about Georgetown being expensive because I, I had a, I had a small, a modest scholarship, uh, but there were still tuition fees to be paid. And, uh, I was invited to talk to coach Thompson, right? I'd never been to a basketball game. Uh, at least I don't think I'd been to one. I wasn't an ardent fan. And I'm meeting with Thompson in his office, big 610, 250, and imposing person, kind, but imposing. And he's kind of talking about the program. I don't really know where this is going. I was a little bit less mature then than I am today. So I had, I had no preconceptions of what the meeting was about. And then he starts to talk about, he has an opening for manager and, and I'm like, I didn't see it coming. And I, at the time, I didn't have a strong opinion of what a manager job would be. So I, 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 I demurred and I started to give him names of my, some of my friends I knew would have loved to have been managers, Nick Latayad and Bob Bembry and a couple other guys. And then towards the end, he says, there's a scholarship attached, a full, what's called a full ride, full room and border. I'm like, I'm your guy. <laughs> but the irony is, you know, I don't remember the, 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 the sequencing, but if that interview was on a Wednesday, that Friday, I was scheduled to go to Fort Belvoir, I think, to do an interview to join Army T- ROTC. So those are two dramatically different paths. What is ROTC? Uh, uh, Reserve Officers Training Corps, military. Oh, so that was a nice way to fund. That would have been a way to fund my Georgetown education. Yeah. So I have thought about those were two dramatically different tracks. Doing ROTC as it would have been for my sophomore year, 
to pay for my sophomore, junior, senior, or being a manager with a basketball team to pay for my sophomore, junior, senior. Mm. The doors to the basketball program opened up were tremendous. And, and if you know anything about division one college sports, the alumni community, huge community, the campus community loved the team. I was at Georgetown when, and when, when I went into the program, there were a little known, little known regional basketball, to ta- basketball team attached to regional college. By the time I exited Georgetown, Georgetown had become a national powerhouse, both academically and sports wise. And I attribute a lot of that to the basketball team. Um, uh, donations to the university went up. Mm-hmm. Number of applications went up, which means the quality of the applicant pool that you were able to select from yeah. increased. Uh, there were so, and then, and then, and because the, the, the mechanics are a successful sports program for any school has like an ad campaign, mm-hmm. right? Of course. And as you, as you have more demand, right? Good things happen. You can charge more for tuition, all kinds of things. And it didn't, it didn't encumber the academic reputation of the university, which was very solid nursing law, international affairs. It amplified it. Yeah. We had hearings because there was a concern that the sports reputation was overwhelming the academic. And there's so many kids. I remember to this day, cause I sat in on the hearing. So many kids would say, you know, I'm from Erie, Pennsylvania. And I'm now a junior. My first two years freshman software, no one knew what Georgetown was, no one cared. And now that Georgetown has this hot, successful program, everybody in my town knows Georgetown and I hold my head high. So I saw that. And, and again, the decision to do one versus the other basketball program versus ROTC was a dramatic kind of, uh, path in my, in my life. What was the defining reason or the critical reason why you took that path over the ROTC? You know, I've never thought about that. It was a no brainer. You know, Georgetown had the hot hand on campus. I mean, I hadn't been to games, but I knew that this was core to the lifestyle of the university. The the team had momentum. It had energy. It became known as the heart attack Hoyas. It became one of the, one of the most, um, dynamic basketball programs in the country. You know, it's the story of the 300, the, the small, tiny group yeah. against the world. And also what I, what I, you know, the two other threats were Thompson, not unlike my Barbados culture was adamant about education. Georgetown back then probably had one of the highest graduation rates of a division one school. He had a nun as a assistant uh, coach, Mary Fendel, and she was an academic coach. And her job was to make sure kids went to class on time and got a good education, right? Thompson, who's deceased now, so is Mary, and uh, even now it brings a tear to me thinking about it. Coach Thompson would have a deflated basketball put at his desk. And he would use that, Mark, to make the point that what is your plan when you're not playing basketball anymore? And it was a beautiful symbol. So yeah. imagine you walk in there, it's office, large coach's office, large guy big desk and a bat, uh, a, and a, a low pedestal about three inches high, and he would have a deflated basketball. So if you're a recruit, if you're a parent, if you're an alumni, whoever came into that office, that's one of the first things. And it was the constant reminder of his passion and his diligence in making sure that the kids he touched had a future. Yeah. And stay grounded. 
and yeah, in touch with reality. Wow, that's brilliant. What a fantastic sort of uh, symbol and uh, I suppose metaphor. Wow. The other thing, just to interrupt, but, but it, it gets me thinking, his other passion was for the rights of players. And, you know, today, I don't know if you follow it, but the Supreme Court made a decision probably two months ago now about the ability of college players to monetize their IP. I didn't see it. You know, as you know, you have cases where a university is making tens of millions of dollars off of a football program. The coach is getting paid $7 million a year and the players get a stipend. And back then, and this is the late seventies, early eighties, coach Thompson was adamant. I don't, I can't remember if he advocated paying the players, but he was a strong advocate for recognizing the economic benefits that the university derives off the backs of the players. And a lot of these players being people of color. Yeah. And I've always admired the fact that coach Thompson would not be, would have not had the success he had were it not for the university president, presidents of, I forget the, the, the one that was there when our father Healy who is much beloved in the Georgia University. He was revolutionary for supporting this, this coach at Georgia and for nurturing and supporting an aggressive commitment to the resourcing of the program. And then when he left, he was succeeded by Jack DeJoya, who is still at Georgetown. And I've always said, you know, you're not telling the full story of Coach Thompson's success if you don't also talk about the, the support he got from the administration led by the president of the university. So both Father Healy and Jack DeJoya were and have been visionaries in supporting the basketball program at Tourist. What was it that Coach Thompson approached you about this, this role? An intermediary. Uh, okay. The, the, the D, I forget it, Sam Harvey, who ran the Office of Minority Affairs, was good friends with Coach, Tom, with Coach Thompson, approached me. So they must have seen something in you and recognized a talent, a latent talent that they felt they could nurture and you would be a, a good fit. Did they ever discuss with you what that was? No, but you know, it's funny you said that. Um, and I think this is probably true of division one sports, but the managers at Georgetown that I knew in my era, phenomenal people, um, Andre Hawkins, kid out of the Bronx, you know, classic, like just such an unusual character to be at Georgetown when you think of the stigma of Georgetown back in the 70s, right? He was not from Greenwich, Connecticut uh, or the suburbs of Washington, D.C. He was from the Bronx. He was, he was from Gun Hill Road. And, uh, and he's wonderful. He's a friend to this day living in Portland. There was Steve and Scott Wolf, two brothers out of Massachusetts. Their father was a brilliant entrepreneur. Uh, Scott has made a mark in film and Steve has made a mark in tech. And they were, we were all managers together. And I've learned over the years, because, and again, this is not limited to yourself. I've met some extraordinary people that were managers. And, and I think it was less the stereotype of a manager being somebody that wanted to be a baller. It's more people that were very independent, very focused, focused, organized, determined, and loyal. And so I've never thought about what Sam saw or didn't see in me. Uh, again, I've always loved the adults, the teachers. So when I matriculated in the Georgetown, I had good relationships with the Office of Student Affairs. They were my benefactor. They're the reason I got into Georgetown through this minority scholarship. So I always stayed close to them. I did what I could to support their program. And they looked out for me. Same thing with Ellen Morell, quite frankly, the teacher. I mean, it, well, you know, when I got into the Alumni Association, who do I run into? But 
Ellen. So Ellen was on the big boy board, the board of trustees, the people with the money and the power and the influence to help guide the university. And I was with what's called the alumni board of government. And, and, and that's a wonderful group. I, I just, I just can't say enough. I've been blessed with amazing experiences and meeting amazing people from junior high to high school, to undergrad, to grad school. I, I've done a podcast like this with one of my much beloved pre- professors from Georgetown, uh, I mean, from work, uh, Dave Reekside. He and I reconnected probably 10 years after I left through a community of chief marketing officers and, uh, and he's a baller. And I've always had like strong, good relationships with these people, uh, mutual respect, even as a kid with a high school teacher and a sense of exploration and a sense of curiosity and a sense, a sense of challenging norms. What about ambition and, um, competitiveness? I mean, you, you were part of a, a transformation, as you say, from when you started and to when you departed. I mean, that, that drive to win, to compete, uh, and to exceed expectations, uh, must have been a key part in that. There's, I assume, stayed with you all the way through your career. So oh, I don't think of myself as competitive, but I'll tell you a scary story. So I live in Williamsburg, you know, the area and you know, the L yeah. bed and I routinely, if I'm walking through the subway or up the steps, go down the steps, I'll bet myself that I can beat somebody that's four steps ahead, not violently, like, like running up the steps while I'm like, you know what? I think I can make it to the top of the steps faster <laughs> that little bit of a lead. And I enjoy that. So, but I don't think of that as competitive. It just makes it a more, of course it's not. Yeah. <laughs> it just makes it more interesting. Walk up the steps. <laughs> but I, I, but in general, I don't think of myself as competitive. I, what drives me is I think I can get anything done. I think there are no obstacles other than me. I do wake up thinking that way for seeing the morning, last thing at night on anything. And I think that's a function of my ability to focus and my imagination and my determination and my innovation. And I've always felt that way. So I don't view it as competitive. I'm just like, there's no reason why I can't get something done if an idea pops into my head. And again, I've been surrounded with people like that. I, again, uh, uh, my, my high school guidance counselor, my junior high school principal, I forget her first name, but the last name was Green. She was my uh, mentor in high school, uh, Coach Thompson. George Versailles was a little school that beat Syracuse at Manly Pavilion. So you have to understand. So Syracuse, big, powerful powerhouse basketball team, Georgetown, little tiny regional college goes to play Syracuse in the last game in Manly Pavilion with the top like starting five in the big East at the time or, or the ECAC Eastern collegiate athletic conference. And we beat them and we walked into that game thinking that we, we could beat them. So I've had people throughout my life. I worked for, for crazy guy, Jurgen Bartels in the hotel industry. And, uh, you know, I was at Marriott and then I went to Radisson because, so maybe I am competitive. Radisson was more scrappy and competitive than Marriott. You know, you know, this notion of challenger and champion brands. Yeah. Marriott category leader, Hyatt category leader, Radisson not. I went to Marriott and then my mentor, uh, Tom Story was at Marriott and he went to Radisson and I followed him. And every day you woke up empowered and wanting to take a hill. And that came from the chairman of the company, Jurgen Bartels. And Jurgen was a, uh, a hell of a leader. 
And he wanted to beat all these guys, Marriott, Hyatt, et cetera. I went to Comcast when the largest cable companies were TCI and Time Warner. And Comcast was probably the eighth largest cable company when I went to uh, Comcast. They're last man standing now. They're the largest cable company in the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, I went to Showtime versus HBO. HBO was beating our brains out. But at Showtime, he woke, woke up every day wanting to win, led by Matt Blank and, and Len Foji. So, and then the ultimate challenger, Brad, is WWE. Right? Vince McMahon wakes up every day wanting to conquer, right? And wanting to validate that he's every good as good, every good an entertainment brand as anybody else out there. So through my career, I've been lucky. I've worked with champion and challenger brands. The challengers feel different. And that whole journey was set in motion by George Hill. Mm -hmm. I mean, your paths you've taken, do you think, has it been a, a series of conscious planned goals set and plans or has it been more serendipitous? Yeah, more serendipitous. In my 20s and 30s, it was about getting promoted. It's about getting stripes. Mm -hmm. And in traditional business culture, whether it's brand management or not, the stripes are your manager, your director, your senior director, your VP, your SVP, your AVP, your president. So that's the hierarchy that was instilled in my mind from the time I was 23 coming out of grad school. And probably that defined my life for the next 15 years. And quite frankly, success was how do you make the fastest jumps? I was so proud of myself when I was 30 as a VP. I was at Rad Radisson. I'd moved from the East Coast of Minneapolis. I was scared out of my mind about being in the Midwest, quite frankly, but I grew to love it. But but everything before that, the six or seven years prior was how do I get that VP stripe and, and how do I get it as fast as possible? And then, and then you want to go, as I said, SVP and, and an EVP. So the, the moves I've made were less calculating, more opportunistic mm -hmm. for opportunity, right? You know, there, there's a, there's an article I read about 15 years when we, we had 08, I think it was 08, there's an article written that, you know, people were complaining they couldn't find jobs. Jobs were out there. You had to move. You know, but in all deference to all the young people in New York that are frustrated about the cost of living. Yeah. You paint the market with the highest cost of living. No shit. It's tough in New York. Go to Idaho, go to Minneapolis. Go. So I moved and I've lived in Philadelphia. I've lived in Philadelphia for Comcast, grew up in DC, Minneapolis for Radisson, uh, moved to Connecticut from my first job out of grad school, Richardson Vick slash Proctor. I, I counted, I think I'd moved. I think as of three years ago, I'd moved like 28 times. You, you move for social mobility too. You're in one city and you have three different places you live as you move up the income ladder. I mean, you don't strike me as someone that um, has ever feared failure. Um, and you've obviously made these conscious decisions about moving, to, as you say, to get up the ladder as fast as you can using that sort of military lexicon of get it, earning your stripes. What is your view on, on taking risks and, uh, have you gone about confronting any fears that you've had during those, those major pivotal moments? Well, look, to be clear there, I've had numerous fears and many, many failures. You know, I, I'm giving a speech next week to, I think 700 people or something, and I'm kicking myself every day in fear, but I, I literally had to have a coaching session with myself. Was it two nights ago? I was, I was morbidly fearful about a number of things, just stressed. And I'm like, dude, you're going to go to sleep early. You're going to be in bed by 11. You're going to get a good night's rest. You wake up tomorrow morning and you're going to attack this shit. 
and you're going to figure it out. It's nobody but you. So just figure it out. I woke up yesterday morning and I felt empowered and strengthened. But the night before I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified. I was, I was riddled with fear. So those moments happen. I, I, I don't, uh, I read an article many years ago about Larry Bird and Michael Jordan and successful people like that. And to be clear, I'm not comparing myself to them, but what they said drives them is they still might throw up before a big game. Like they still have a sense of anxiety and stress that I think the point of the article is that, that that translates to exceptional performance. They don't mail it in, right? They still have a fear of failure. And so I echo that I'm fearful a lot, uh, but I also know myself well enough to know that if I dig down and I find that inner resilience, I got no one to blame mm-hmm. and it's not an option. So I got to pull it together. And look, I'm trivializing this. I was with a coworker earlier today who's dealing with a lot of emotional stuff. And I'm, I'm never the one to say buck up, right? Mm-hmm. Cause it's not that simple, right? You know, you do need to let it wash over you and embrace and understand how you're feeling and understand that you're not a superhuman and the best thing you can do is try, but make no mistake. I got myself into this and I'll get myself out of it on so many levels. You mentioned the experience you had at, um, with brands, uh, incredible organizations like Showtime and WWE and also work with Nature Conservancy. You've formed your own consulting business, uh, GRC. How did these experiences sort of prepare you or was there anything in all working with those organizations that compelled you to say, I need to have my own business, my own, go down the entrepreneurial path? Because you said you'd, you'd gone through those various levels of earning your stripes. Just, was it just a natural point at which you went, right, now it's time to do my own thing? Yeah. So, so one thing I'll tell you, ever since I came out of undergrad, I've been struck and enamored by entrepreneurs. All my good friends are entrepreneurs, right? I've never had the balls to do it. I was, I was always a suit. I was an IBM Coca-Cola kind of guy, but my best friends have always been bungee jumpers, right? They, 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 they can, they can, they can jump into the abyss. The work I'm doing now is, is a capstone. It's a natural extension of everything I've done in my life. I love curiosity. I read the book, seven habits of highly effective people when I came out of grad school and there's an exercise in that book where they say, what do you want on your tombstone? And quite frankly, when I look at those exercises, I don't say like, I want to die surrounded by friends and family. It's not that I don't think that way, but what I also think about it is I want to be able to say that I was able to do anything, attack anything in life and, and across a broad array. So my mission since I've been 25 is I wanted to be able to market anything. And if you gave me cure oxygen, who's somebody I'm working with. And you said, and, and you, and, and you said, Jeff, here is a website and a product 30 minutes ago. Give me a marketing and a business plan. I want to be that guy. If you said, give me this germs be gone 30 minutes. Tell me what you would do. If you said, give me the launch of the next iPhone. So I've always had this drive to be industry agnostic, B2B, B2C, entertainment, Acme Concrete Company. Like, give me the most boring product on the face of the planet. And not to juxtapose it to, but to show you the latitude of what I've been willing to consider, I was going to run marketing for North American Van Lines. Like, I interviewed for that job years ago in Fort Wayne, Indiana, nonetheless. And then I took a twirl 
running marketing for PNC Bank out of Pittsburgh. So I, I get juiced. I get cited challenges. And, and here's where, and I don't want, I don't want to put race into it, but I like the idea of being a different person in those jobs, not the expected. So not unlike when I was at the Nature Conservancy, it's expected that a large prominent environmental group would do deals with Patagonian REI. I felt, and I feel today, that I want to make sure people feel the environment and the climate change conversation is for everyone. What does that mean? NASCAR. What does that mean? Harley Davidson. What does that mean? Macy's and Subways. But traditionally, these are not brands you would associate with the environmental movement. So my persona is exactly that. I value differences. I value inclusiveness on voices. Uh, and so I, I view brands the same way. I, I want to be the guy that work with WWE and then work with the Nature Conservancy. People giggle that though. Like, how does that work? Well, to me, it works fabulously because you've got a brand, WWE, that's enduring, was was out there back in the day of Lassie and Gunsmoke and I Love Lucy, brands from the 50s and the 60s and TV that wrestling started back then. Still going, still kicking it, 125 countries, 26 languages, and every content platform you can think of, regional TV, national TV, pay-per-view, graphic novels, theatricals, mobile, et cetera. Few brands can have, have as a long and enduring history successfully as WWE. Uh, so I like being the guy that I can talk fuel additives in the AM, can talk voter registration at 10, can talk ag tech at noon, can talk uh, women's sexual harassment teen girls at two, and end the day on a project with Coca-Cola. And by the way, by the way, it's a rush for your mind. Your mind has to be nimble to absorb those different sectors, different categories, vastly different customer audiences. I suppose that's where you're uh, getting to bed at uh, 11 and waking at six, where you've got enough replenishment for your mind that sleep is important. You, you mentioned your desire, uh, your belief in and, and uh, drive to mark, be able to market anything and that be on your tombstone. Yet we're probably the largest marketing challenge we collectively, you will have ever, uh, ever faced is upon us uh, with the climate crisis that is enveloping us. You're counseling clients to nudge us in the right direction to try and address the sort of the, um, as the UN announced last week, the code red threat to us is, uh, is almost beyond our ability to address the sort of the challenges. Yet organizations are in, but will play a pivotal role in reducing emissions and at the same time Encouraging people to adapt their individual behaviors is also critical to do that. How are you um, approaching this with your clients to guide them and counsel them? Because essentially, I suppose it is, a, if you really boil it down, it is a marketing challenge. Well, it's, it's uh, marketing is part of it. I mean, it's an ambition and pragmatic mm. challenge. So I'll, I'll give you two examples. And a, and, a, and, a, and a general point I make is that, you know, groups are criticized for greenwashing. And I talked yeah. to someone this morning about this, a client about it. I'm like, I point of view on greenwashing. I care about any movement, any movement in the right direction. I don't sit there waiting with bated breath. You know, Coca-Cola makes a pronouncement on their 
initiative to reduce their carbon footprint. I don't start with, well, you're selling sugar water in your fat. And I don't check in every day to see how they're doing. You know, what I said to this client this morning is my perspective on brainwashing some of these accusations is none of us are perfect. These are very complicated issues. You can be a consumer living in Texas, buying a Tesla, beating your chest with pride. And yet when you recharge a Tesla, cool. Correct. So these are very complicated issues. So I have a low bar when it comes to accepting honoring and supporting someone's initiative. I think everyone needs to weigh in. Several, some industries are more important than others, like industrial ag is more important than, you know, my little actions at home, quite frankly, on, on water consumption. I can take shorter showers, fine. I can buy low flow uh, toilet, it's fine. 80% of global water is ag. So uh, 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 my theory of change is more, I think, lower tolerances. I think everyone can do something. And that is from this facility I'm in, which is Santander Bank, to the local baker, to I'm working with a group on producing a food festival. And we had, we had a meeting yesterday. We said, look, the food trucks that we have at food festival, are we going to mandate exactly what sustainable behavior we want from them year one? Are we just going to give them a box and inform and say, what can you do? So I'm more of that guy, right? I, I think the environmental movement has narrowed the aperture of the movement by sometimes being zero tolerance on what it takes to participate. Now, having said all that, you know, you ask, what do I advise my class? I'm working with a group called Purified Fuels. They have an additive that helps diesel burn cleaner. And this is not me, but they have dramatically stepped up their ambition in terms of their appetite and their initiatives to get the product distributed across multiple sectors. In 2020, they were in rail. Uh, this year, by the end of this year, they'll be in rail marine, power generation, fracking, anyone with a large diesel engine, they can help that diesel engine burn 20 to 30% cleaner like that. Because look, I'd love for all those engines to be solar or wind or yeah. electric. No, I mean, look at even with Biden's recommendations and any infrastructure sort of plan that's going to go through, it's going to take 10 to 15 years before the transformation to electric vehicles even gets close to being the majority of what's on the road. Just look at the MTA. Uh, in New York and the amount of diesel buses that are going around the city, a 20 to 30% reduction would have a significant impact on the air quality in the city. Exactly. So, so I'm a pragmatist. It doesn't need to be cool and sexy for me to adopt it. And the good news is, you know, having come out of nature conservancy that probably had 600 PhD scientists, it is about science, right? Getting the facts straight and understanding context matters, right? But, but look, if, if I really, and, and, and solving the ills of climate is not my primary job. If it were, I would look at um, Project Drawdown as a roadmap, yeah. and I would look to I would look to some of the smarter initiatives that you know not that not that we want to go to geoengineering, but there's some radical transformational ideas that we do need now to in, in, to really kick the tires off. Yeah. So when you read that report and you have a sense of of it's too late, no, it's not too late. But the area that I love for transformation is private sector. So all these accelerators running around the place, I'll make it up. You go to MIT, Stanford, you go to anything, you go to like college students globally and you say, well, we're going to create a hundred prizes. We're going to give you a million bucks each. And these are the five problems you want to solve. You can get some great ideas out of that, right? Some radically ideas that will generate radical improvements. So I'm a big fan 
of using the private sector model to unleash amazing minds to solve these problems. I, I have an example. There's a, somebody I've worked with, Sustainable Ocean Alliance. Young woman, Georgetown alum, Daniela, I adore her. She told me when she was 19, she had a vision to be the, 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 the holy vessel for the voice of millennial, uh, millennials that care about protecting the world's oceans. So she started as a pundit. She was flying around the world. She was like a Greta for the oceans. Greta for the oceans, older. She was 19 when she started. She convened a conference at Georgetown year one. She had 400 people, predominantly students from around the country, but she got, you know, people from large environmental groups like the Nature Conservancy and from the State Department. So she started as a pundit. Then she moved to convening the third iteration of her brand and her, and her nonprofit, Sustainable Ocean Alliance. She's founding startups. She's funding five to 10 startups run by millennials using technology to solve the world's largest marine problems. So in five years, she'll have 20 of these companies. Trust me, good things will happen from that. So I, I'm more willing to bet on that as a methodology to solve these problems than necessarily, and yes, we have to look to the traditional industries, no question, right? And we can't let them off the hook. So we've got to look to the fossil fuel industries. We've got to look at governmental and policy interventions. But when you think about we're running out of time and we need a home run, that's where I would invest in. And a lot of people are putting more and more money into accelerators. Nature Conservancy has a partnership with Denver Techstars, where they're nurturing next generation entrepreneurs, Denver Techstars, Nature Conservancy. So I like the idea of seeding seed capital for transformational ideas. XPRIZE, you know XPRIZE, right? Yeah, of course, yeah. A bunch of the space stuff came out of XPRIZE. Yeah, that's true. I'm out of touch with those guys, but I presume they're dropping $20 million grants for next generation ideas to address climate change. Yeah, no, it's, it's going to be very exciting to see what emerges over the next five, 10 years, because uh, I'm sure a lot of these are just on the radar at the moment. And I think you, you mentioned Project Drawdown and anyone that um, has not gone to the website or read the book or even watched the Woody Harrelson film, there are so many just easy to achieve transformational impacts that, that could put us on the right path if with just the, the sufficient support of uh, organizations and governments. So I'm, yeah. I'm, let, let, me, let me give a plug for just someone I'm betting on, the presumptive uh, mayor of New York, Eric Adams, right? So you have an African-American gentleman, I assume he's around 55. He's a former cop. He's of the community, right? Yeah. Brooklyn guy. He's been Brooklyn Borough president for two terms. He has a big ambition around health and nutrition, which is something we don't talk enough about, preventative health care, right? He, he was diagnosed with diabetes. He was going blind. He wrote a book about it. And so part of his plank, his pillar, if and when he becomes mayor, is to address this issue of food insecurity, food deserts, preventative health care through nutrition, rooftop gardens, community gardens, et cetera. That's all transformational stuff. And we don't talk enough about it. So the good news is in some of these areas, there are solutions right under our feet. We need political will and we need corporate muscle to pull them off, right? App Harvest has a program where they have these container farms. So as they expand with their sites, App Harvest is a greenhouse company in Eastern Kentucky. As they build these structures, these greenhouses, they're dropping these labs, uh, these container farms. So imagine a retrofitted railroad car that's producing food for the school and food for the community. And you're teaching a 14 year old about indoor ag, right? So there, there are tons of good stories of intervention and transformation. Uh, I'm lucky. I tell all my friends, people are like, 
aren't you depressed about this? Aren't you depressed about that? I'm like, no, I'm hopeful. I talk to amazing people every day, way smarter than me, way more courageous. They're making a difference. And in seven out of 10 cases, the ideas are highly scalable. No, it's exciting. Um, just quickly on your team, we're clearly living um, a time of uncertainty. Um, there's optimism, but there's also a lot of rage out there. How are you helping them remain optimistic and uh, confront the ambiguity that lies um, ahead of us? We, we celebrate a lot. Uh, the, you know, my, my core team, there's a gentleman in the UK, there's one in Uruguay, there is one in Florida, and they're my core partners. And my phone lights up at 5, 6 a.m. because of the guy in the UK, right? And we'll process like our internal wins, we'll celebrate them. I do this with a larger group as well. But I think we constantly remind ourselves, not of the dark, but I think that's a key tool. I mean, we're surrounded by dark. That's great. You want to be grounded and you want to know what you're really dealing with. But you also want to take time to celebrate the victories that, you know, you want to string those together. No, that's, that's good direction and a, uh, a simple sort of binary sort of way of looking at the world. But uh, you're right, we are in very, for it does appear to be very dark times. If you were given what we're talking about, the, the nature of the world today and, and looking back at where you were when you went to Georgetown. If you were back at school today and leaving, knowing that with a will to change the world, what would you do at university? I would, I would, take, I would take the same classes. I mean, you know, the, the area I'm the softest on is tech and science. So I was thinking the other day that if I had, a, not if I had it to do over again, I really look back. I was saying that at some point I should find the time to take a programming class. And I think Business Week or Time Magazine about 10 years ago had an article where in a cover they said every CEO in this country should take a class in computer programming. It would change the way they look at tech. Yeah. Well, it's, it's being forced upon them. Many CEOs, I mean, you just look at the automotive in industry. <laughs> They're, it's becoming a, essentially a software and hardware business now. So I think that's, uh, I remember, yeah, 2008, 2009, reading something similar as well, saying that every company is going to be a tech company and is fast approaching that. Similarly, for the work I do, I wish I had a little stronger base in science. Mm -hmm. You know, when you look at the chemistry of climate change and all that kind of stuff, I wish I was... I, I had a stronger game. Yeah, I, I don't have many regrets, but I do look back at my uh, first year of doing engineering and I dropped out and did not like doing basic programming back at University in Edinburgh. Uh, we can uh, only look back in hindsight and sort of, uh, yeah, with small regrets. Where do you want to be specifically where we hit when we hit 2030? I, you know, I, I want to be right here. I will tell you, I, I'm starting, people always say you don't take vacation, you don't do this, you don't do that. I do need to figure out a way to take more time for myself. I was going to, I had this fantasy about six weeks ago that I'd be in Paris partying like a rock star for my birthday is September 20th. No, no, I'm going to be at meetings somewhere. <laughs> so I would like to be doing exactly what I'm doing, but I'd like to be taking more time for to just quiet time. Well, not quiet, but just time away on vacation and by 2030 yeah. or 2030. Maybe a little trip to Sandy Lane and Barbados. Well, you know, so I do go down to Barbados a fair, uh, you know, two, three times a year. I'm the primary caregiver. So quite frankly, when I get go down there, I, I, I do have fun, don't get me wrong. But, you know, the, the central theme when I'm down there is the care and feeding of two lovely folks in their 90s that do not have much more time on this planet. Yeah. You've talked about your legacy and what you want it to be. So um, let's talk about the quick, let's do the quick fire questions and get to principles. Oh, God, I hate these. Okay, go ahead. 
This will be a fail for the audience. Prepare to watch me fail and worm. Go ahead. Uh, what principles do you stand by? What principles? Yeah. Uh, treat not, one principle, treat people the way you want to be treated. Yeah. And it's been said quite a few times by our guests and it's uh, universal. I've, I've said this before in uh, 2000 at the turn of the millennium, the UK publisher um, and television station Channel 4 did a study uh, across all of the um, regions of the UK and different uh, religions and uh, asked what was the most important lesson for life and it was um, do unto others as you would be done by essentially that everyone has to make hard choices in life what hard choices have you made that did turn out to be the right decision in retrospect a couple um, the Georgetown one I talked about this, this is going to seem weird in a personal one and I, I don't want to overshare I've, I've decided not to date per se over the past two to three years and I'm happier and calmer. I'm, I'm not, I'm not a strong enough person to deal with the vicissitudes of relationships. <laughs> and, you know, no, no, I, I've told people I have two priorities, my parents and my work. That's it. And so, uh, that it wasn't even a tough decision. It was a natural one. So I, 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 and it was a surprising decision to make cognitively, but it was a very deliberate choice. Well, if you do decide to date, my last guest on the show, um, the author and also entrepreneur, Susan McPherson, who's in a similar business to you, came out on the show. Yeah. I love Susan. Uh, there, there you go. She's looking for a partner. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just putting it out there. Bookends. Bookends. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. I'm sure the conversations over a glass of rum on a beach in Barbados would be quite stimulating. <laughs> anyway, where do you go to discover new ideas? Bars, walking down to the street. I have some of my best conversations with people that I meet for the first time. And that's one reason I love Williamsburg, quite frankly. Mm. I, I'm a bar fly. I've met some incredible people just down the street from there. Mm. Favorite bar in Williamsburg? And, and planks. When I'm by myself, in a plane at 35,000 feet, it opens up my mind. Yeah, well, there's not been many of those recently. Um, what's your favorite bar in Williamsburg? Uh, a, a place down the street called Fabrica. It's on a corner. Oh, yeah, I know. It's nice. Yeah, that, that's my hang. That's my hang. I'm there it's good four, four nights a week. Okay, I might see you in there before I head to Austin. What's the one problem worth solving? Uh, for me, it's the divide in the U.S. It saddens me. I mean, it's something I literally cry about twice a week. Climate, I get. Uh, I don't get that. And I don't think enough people have put enough attention into solving it. It's not about hating the other guy. We it, There's a significant portion of people that think dramatically different than I do. And I will not rest personally until we figure it out. We cannot abandon it. We cannot give up. It is a central defining problem for the United States. And it saddens me deeply. It's interesting. I asked Susan, the, the guest uh, I mentioned, um, what that same question, her answer was a, probably sort of a um, parallel to that, which was misinformation. And I think one feeds the other. And whether we, we think that there are bad state actors or there are algorithms and AI um, bots creating this divide, clearly the two go hand in hand that we need to confront it as a nation. Um, yeah, I, I, I do think it's beyond the misinformation. I think misinformation is an, is an enabler, but I think, I think there are some things going on societally and you've, and you've read about it, right? So the, the changing demographics of this country has people steer, right? And yeah. then when you add misinformation to that, 
But that has nothing to do with misinformation. That's an inherent view that my life is getting turned upside down. I don't like what this feels like. And the larger society not helping people feel more comfortable with that, for example. So I think there are like three to four things like that. And then misinformation is a common note that feeds those fires. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, you sometimes wish there was a platform where people could come together and have proper discussions without anger and bitterness and hate. It's just, unfortunately, it's that in itself, aside from all the wonderful innovators and idea generators out there trying to solve problems for climate, there should be people out there trying to build platforms that will address this. So, and, and, and by the way, by the way, we all have to model behavior. I, I travel a lot. I'm frequently, uh, probably 40% of the time, I'm in cabs, the back of an Uber with someone who disagrees with what I, what I believe. Yeah. And we can dismiss that or engage. I try to engage and leave and I'll, I'll say, look, I disagree, but you know, what I love is we can have a respectful conversation about it. Yeah. Yeah. That's the key word, isn't it? Respect. That's, that seems to have been lost on many people. If you could bring together four people, either from today or from history, to work with you to solve this big problem, who would they be? Clinton and Obama would be two of the four. The style and the ambitions that they both had. And look, they're not perfect, right? They, they both come with flaws. But I think at the time, they accomplished some things that people were surprised at their ability to accomplish. I don't know who else off the top of my head. I'd love to have somebody really young in that conversation. And I'd obviously love to have a woman in that conversation, but, but no names come to mind. But when I think of, of people that at least at the time I was simpatico with some of their political beliefs and what they were trying to get done and the style in which they, and style matters, right? Yeah. The style in which they communicated across the aisle, et cetera. Those are two that I, I, I think, uh, really tried hard. I was cycling yesterday and passed Eleanor Roosevelt's statue on 72nd street. Uh, maybe. Maybe it should be a good addition. Um, who or what has made you reevaluate yourself? This divide has made me reevaluate a lot, quite frankly. I think it's easy to hate on the other. And I'm, I'm, I, I, it's not even a struggle, but intellectually and emotionally, I know that I cannot hate the other. So that, that has caused me some angst and self-reflection, the divide, quote unquote. And then I, I, I wake up a lot thinking, and this is going to sound corny. I wake up a lot thinking, what would my dad think? And my parents think of my behavior doesn't happen a lot, but sometimes I challenge my moral compass a little bit or, or am I doing enough ethically? Uh, you know, am I, you know, should I be out drinking or should I be out like doing something better for the world, for example? So every once in a while, I get the sense of someone looking over my shoulder and saying, oh, wow, what you did last night, brother. <laughs> well, how are you spending your time, right? Or your money? I, I do think about that from time to time. My, my parents are wonderful. They were very conservative very conscientious, big savers. I'm the exact opposite of all of those. So I, 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 uh, I think about that moral compass for my parents. Okay. Um, what would your advice be to someone that's about to graduate study or it's got a big goal, ambition, a dream, but has been counseled or advised that it's impossible. And I would, I would tell them to, to listen to others. I, I didn't, I didn't realize you were going to say that it was impossible, but I would say the, the advice is still the same. Uh, listen to others, listen to those voices that really care about your success. Be humble. Um, presumably they will be successful, be humble and always have a true North. Mm. You know, and the other thing, quite frankly, you know, be it an entrepreneur or somebody else that's trying to do something difficult, be adaptable. You know, you, you know I, I don't know how many people that, you know, they, they, they have the big ambition. They go through one door, they meet obstacles. 
do you retreat or do you like pivot and try another door, try another door and try another door? So I think, I think adaptability correlates with high ambitions and, and that's in stark perhaps contrast to being focused. So some would say focus like a laser, don't give up, just hammer it, hammer it. And I'm saying, no, you can have true north, but you may have to adapt different ways to get there that you didn't necessarily contemplate when you first decided to go up that path. Yeah. I think one of the biggest lessons I've had in life is, uh, learning about sunken cost bias and knowing when to give up. <laughs> Retreat, pull up, uh, yeah. pull up. Yeah. Or take that slightly meandering path. To finish with these quick questions. Um, we're out of lockdown now. Um, bars are opening. Theatres are opening. Uh, bars you bars have been open, buddy. Well, they'd be, yeah, they, yeah, they'd be open. We'd go there now and sit outside and sit inside without masks and have a, a sit at a bar, you know, so it's good. Where, what would your go-to karaoke song be? Yeah, look, I'm not a karaoke guy. I mean, I, <laughs> I've, I've had some friends that I've enjoyed their company at karaoke bars, but uh, I, uh, you know, I, I, I saw Queen. I've seen Queen twice on, on the plane or maybe three times in the past couple of months. I love We Are The Champions. It's a classic. I, I love the, the intent of it, uh, which is, I think, I think that's a song. It's a celebration of all the beautiful types of people out there that you're not fails, you're not losers, you are the champions. I think it's a message of the song, but I love that. I, I told my team a couple of months ago that that should be an anthem song for GRC. We spent a lot of time in front of the screens in lockdown. Um, what series or documentary that people might have missed would you recommend that they watch? I was thinking about this recently. I took great joy in it. It wasn't a documentary, but it was a film about, it's a true story about collaboration during, uh, the, the, the Cuban missile crisis about a collaboration between a, a British intelligence officer. It was a businessman, a Brit who was convinced by the, uh, British intelligence to go to Moscow and develop a friendship with a KGB scientist, nuclear scientist. It was a wonderful movie. Uh, I believe it is a true story. With Benedict Cumberbatch. Yes. I know. Yeah. It's one of the most powerful stories I've seen in a long, long time. I mean, the fact that they both went to prison on the Russian died in prison, the Brit was released. Yeah. The, the, the thing that killed me about it is. He was such a reluctant spy in the first place and, and then not to ruin the plot for people, but when they told him he should pull out because it was too risky, he forged ahead. The courier. Yes. The courier. That's it. Yeah. Okay. No, it's a great film. I've seen 90% of my films on planes and that one was, uh, I respect it start to finish. Yeah. I'll put that one in. Okay. Um, what book? We offer a book to listeners that come up with good comments when they do on Instagram or on the website. Um, what book do you want us to offer? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm old school and I've, I've given both copies. I, I gave, I'm um, someone is sending copies to two of my interns tomorrow. Uh, seven habits of highly effective people and rich dad, poor dad. Oh, right. Okay. And the headline on rich dad, poor dad is, and my dad was a poor dad. He was a civil servant. He never, we didn't kick around entrepreneurial ideas at the dinner table. We talked about service to a, a goal or a vision. Uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I've got a good friend, Tom Boland, that I've been talking to recently, who's at Barstool Sports, about his journey and the notion of, yes, you do your corporate job, but you also build equity on the side that you control. And Rich Dad, Poor Dad is that story. 
I've not read that, so I'll, I'll certainly um, we'll put that on the list and I'll read it myself as well. So that's good. Um, and final question. Are we done, brother? Well, final question. Who should we, who should we interview next? Oh, that's a good question. I got a bunch for you. Mark Tursik, my former boss from Nature Conservancy. He's a Renaissance guy. I like the sound of that. Goldman Sachs, Harvard guy, taught in Japan, taught Jap, Jap, uh, English to Japanese kids out of college, uh, also played football. Uh, is very Zen, does yoga, uh, ran the largest environmental group in the world for a while. And now he's got a couple of passions. So that's one. The other one is Mark Turksik. I mean, uh, Mark Greenberg. Greenberg. Okay. He, he was a mentor to me when I was at Showtime. Um, he's worked at HBO Showtime and they founded, he founded Epics, which is the new service. Yeah. And he was much derided in the community, in the media community, because no one thought anyone can create a new premium competitor, stars, HBO, Showtime. He did it. And so he's a serial entrepreneur. He's an, he's both an entrepreneur and an entrepreneur. He is a uh, trailblaze within big organizations like Viacom. And then he went outside of that and he was an entrepreneur himself. And he is, he is one of the, both of them are two of the smartest guys I know. I learned from both. Wonderful. Both, both would be great to have an introduction. Okay. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Okay. okay. We gotta grab a beer. Absolutely. I'm gonna hold you to that. Right. Okay. See you later. Okay. Bye. Okay. That's all for this week, folks. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, rate, recommend, or review, depending on where you listen. And if you have someone you'd like us to interview, just DM us on Instagram at The Impossible Network or email us at info at theimpossiblenetwork.com. And please give our other podcast, The Raw Hospitality Show, a listen. They are both Fabrica Collective Productions. See you next time.